didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of his power. That's what Paul's saying. I came and preached the gospel. That was God's gospel, not mine. It wasn't about my wisdom. It wasn't about my cleverness. I preached Jesus. And yet Corinth was full of people, Jews, Greeks, Gentiles, trying to lead the Corinthian church away from their core message. People were trying to discredit the gospel. People were trying to raise themselves up as wise, powerful leaders themselves and steer the church in different ways. And some of those people might have seemed incredibly wise, incredibly authoritative, incredibly knowledgeable and powerful. The message here is that none of them compares to God. And God is the central feature of this passage. We see nine separate references to God. Paul is clearly ensuring that the focus is shifted from any person onto God, away from human achievements, away from human power, and onto God's wisdom over and above anything that humanity can offer. This passage exposes any human attempt to make sense of this world, any human effort to explain what's going on as flawed, any human attempt to answer the great problems of our existence are rubbish compared to Jesus. And what Paul leads on to is the ultimate revelation of the power and the wisdom of God, and that is Christ crucified. And that's what we're really going to focus in on this morning. And there's two elements of, of Christ crucified that, that Paul brings out. Firstly, the Christ crucified is the foolishness which destroys human wisdom. It sounds like a contradiction in terms of how can something foolish destroy wisdom? But Paul knows the gospel inside out. He is one of the biggest, most successful preachers of the gospel the world has ever seen, certainly at that point as well. But he also understands that if you're someone who doesn't believe in the gospel, then to you it might appear foolish. He says to those who are perishing, to those who have not understood and accepted the gospel, to them, the life and death of Jesus, of a, a poor Palestinian Jew, might not seem particularly important. It just might not make sense. I mean, for a start, you've got to get over the hurdle of the fact that you've got to believe that there's a God in the first place who's outside of time and space. Then we've got to understand our, you know, who we are as humans, that we are alienated from God, even though he created us and loved us. Then you've got to get your head around the idea that this incredible God, this incredible, powerful, awesome God, would want to fix that problem by coming to earth mind boggling it seems foolish, doesn't it? And then when you get out when you get head around that the, the idea that God might come to earth, then there's the way that he did it into poverty. Born in a stable, raised as a normal guy, as a, a, a Palestinian Jew who was a carpenter. And then that he led this peaceful life, eventually embarking on a short journey of, of teaching and healing, but not particularly wowing people with fights or battles or victories. And then strangely, this guy, after all his teaching and all his wisdom, just dying. It seems foolish, doesn't it? If, you, if you're not someone who's bought into that, that seems like a, a foolish idea. How can this guy save us? How can this guy be of any importance to us whatsoever? Paul acknowledges this. Paul, Paul acknowledges that to, to the people around Corinth at the time, to the Jews, to the Greeks, 
that Jesus, if, if he is the saviour, if he is this person that we're supposed to be interested in, it's not exactly what we expected. You see, the Jewish people, they were looking for a hero. They wanted someone who was going to fulfill all the prophecies of the Old Testament. They were looking for signs and wonders. They were looking for amazing miracles. They were looking for an amazing climax of seeing this victorious person, this mighty warrior, eventually winning and being crowned as this permanent king. They wanted someone who they could easily believe and trust in. Someone to whom all the evidence would point to them being king, saviour, lord. They wanted to see a victorious, mighty leader. Someone they could really rally around and say, this is the guy. Like they had with King David. King David, years before, had been this successful, wise, powerful, victorious king. A warrior. You can imagine that sort of king. Someone who you could hold up on a pedestal and say, this is it. This is our leader. Sorry. And the Greeks, well, they were more about intellect. They were more about cleverness. They were more about argument and reason and conceptual thinking. And actually, they could conceive of a god. They had gods in their, in their culture. But the god they imagined, the god they conceived of, was a distant thing, a powerful thing, but someone who was detached and impersonal, and not feeling, because feeling anything would be weakness. Sympathizing, empathizing, having emotions, that's not something that God should do. God should just be this powerful, mighty thing. You know, a key, a key characteristic of the Greek God would be apathy. The ability to just not worry about things, not feel things, not, not be passionate about anything. So for the Jews, this idea of Jesus was hard to get over. Yes, he showed some promise. There were some miracles. There were some amazing acts that he were attributed to him. But how could they get past the fact that they, when they were expecting a heroic, eternal, victorious king, they ended up with a carpenter who was executed in humiliation? How could their Messiah, their Savior, their victorious one, be killed? crucified Messiah is a contradiction in terms. How could someone who's won die? Paul describes it in this passage um, in verse 23 as Jesus being a stumbling block to the Jews. The actual Greek word there is scandalon, from which we get our word scandal. It's a scandal how he could think like this. How could this guy be our hero, be our Messiah? We can't past this how can it be scandalous to think that god a could come to earth and b could die and lose what's that about and for the greeks this idea of jesus being god of this this thing was supposed to be apathetic and distant and powerful but detached becoming human becoming like us coming to earth Greek gods aren't supposed to think or feel or certainly not suffer how could he suffer how could he die how could someone all powerful suffer and feel and, and lose it's insane, it's foolish, it's senseless and despite all of this though 
Paul makes no attempt to disguise Jesus. Makes no attempt to dress him up and make him look more acceptable to the Jews or the Greeks or the people in Corinth. He boldly preaches Jesus exactly as he is. Christ crucified. Christ crucified. And it seems like foolishness, but he makes the point. The foolishness of God is wiser than any wisdom, any wisdom that all of humanity can muster. All your concepts of God, all your ideas of what he should be, what he should look like, what he should be, what he should do. It's all foolishness. As wise as you think that is, compared to what the reality is. To someone looking for a Messiah, Jesus' death looks like a catastrophic failure. Supposed hero, a leader, a king, conquered by his enemies, foiled and killed. It's only when we understand the true context of what his death meant that we, we get it. I'm going to apologize now. I know I have a reputation for talking about football a lot. There's the language that I understand. I'm just going to play. You got that clip, Tom? Just try and stick with it. <laughs> this is an Everton match from a little while ago. And what we see here, that was the Everton goalkeeper just rushed out of this penalty area. He's fallen down. And the ball, the game carries on. The ball is crossed to that West Ham player, a guy called Paolo Di Canio. He's got a chance to score. The game is 1-1 at that point. It's near the end. The Everton goalkeeper is down. He's out of his goal. He's fallen over. Di Canio can score. And what does he do? He catches the ball and stops the game. I remember at the time, the West Ham manager, I think it was Harry Redknapp, was furious. What are you doing? What are you doing? You've just stopped. Like you've, you've, by handling hand the ball, the referee's got to give a free kick. The game's got stopped. You had a chance to score. You had a chance to win. You had a chance to be the hero. You could have won the game for us. And you broke the rules and caught the ball instead. What are you doing? Foolish, foolish man. What are you playing at? But the context was, as you'll see here, as the goalkeeper comes out, he's just ruptured his knee. Okay? He fell over, he twisted his knee, he went down, injured. He was suffering. And Paolo Dicani said, wait, 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 this guy's down. I don't care about winning the game. I don't care about scoring the goal. I don't care about being the hero. We need to sort this guy out. What looked like foolishness, what looked like stupidity, what looked like breaking the rules, you can turn that off now so I'm not going to sing it with friends, <laughs> was actually a sacrifice. Here was the can you saying, actually, you know, there's something more important than winning, there's something more, impor more important than uh, being the hero. We're all right, don't worry. Is it too late to change my Christmas list, though? There's something more important. And so when we look at Jesus' death in isolation as an act in itself, we think foolish, defeat, end of. We think, what are you playing at? But when we look at the bigger picture and we understand Jesus' death was not defeat, it was sacrifice. And that sacrifice turns what looks from the outside like a senseless death into an incredible display of compassion, of grace-filled wisdom that can save mankind. God knows the greatest need of all of us, all of us sat here today, all of us who ever lived, 
is the forgiveness of our sin and our reconciliation to him. Paul tells us elsewhere in the book of Romans that all humans before and after the time of Jesus, everyone ever has sinned. All of us have fallen short of the standards that God has set. It's offensive to God. It's rebellious to God. He can't tolerate it. Sin requires a penalty because God is just and our actions have consequences. Sin has a punishment. And God knows that we can't pay that penalty ourselves. We can't do it. But Jesus could and Jesus did. And his perfect sinless life and his sacrificial death was acceptable. So it might have seemed foolish. It might have seemed foolish to the Jews and the Greeks and anyone else who was around at the time hearing it for the first time. But to those who believe, it's the most incredible, significant, powerful moment in all of human history. Our wisdom is powerless to save us from the punishment we deserve from God. We can't argue and defend our way out of sin. We can't stand in front of God with our intellect, with our cleverness, with our clever words, with our intelligence, and reason with God and say, oh, come on, I live a good life. I'm okay, really. There's an excuse for all the things I've done wrong, but, you know, I'm a good guy. We can't do that. There is no defense. We are guilty. We deserve the punishment. But God knew that we needed. And Jesus was obedient and fulfilling it. By dying, Jesus did what no human wisdom, what no human intelligence could ever do and took the punishment we deserved. We struggled to come to terms with the concept, but it wasn't a new concept. Paul, in the passage, quotes from Isaiah, where God promised to confound wisdom, to confound intelligence, to do it his way, to show up the wisdom of the world for being foolish. And do you know what? To me, it's right and natural that God's plans seem foolish to us. Because if we understood them, then we'd be God ourselves. And we'd have saved ourselves, we'd have no need for him. God's understanding is so much higher. He knows exactly what we need. And do you know what? I'm comfortable with that. <laughs> that he knows more than I do. And that he knew what, was take, what it would take. And so Paul's message to the Corinthians. Is, Guys, if this, seems crazy, if this seems crazy to you, it's because it is. To you. And that's how you know it's not me who's coming up with this. That's how you know I haven't just made this up. I haven't just cooked cook this up as some crazy scheme. I couldn't if I tried. If I was going to try and convince you that someone was a saviour, believe me, in a million years I would not have come up with Christ crucified. I would never have come up with that. It's foolish to us, but believe me when I say this foolishness is more packed with wisdom than anything we could ever imagine. And that's the first part of Christ crucified. Foolishness which destroys human wisdom. The second part so Christ crucified is a weakness which overpowers any human strength or any other strength. See, to many again in Corinth and, and since, Christ crucified seems to be a weakness. Despite all the Old Testament prophets who talked about the Messiah being someone who would suffer, it's a 
be someone who would be killed, to be a lamb to the slaughter. It was all in there. It was all in there. But people still couldn't get their head around it. How could this? How could this guy suffer? How could? How could this guy show such weakness and be killed and executed? So much of Jewish exhortation, remember, was caught up with a desire for a brave warrior king, a war hero, someone who would free them from the oppression of Roman rule. They wanted a strong, powerful figure, like they did back in the Old Testament when they first chose a king. They wanted the tallest, most powerful guy. They wanted Saul. They wanted the guy who beat and defeated the most enemies. They didn't want a peaceful, wise person. They wanted military strength. Jewish Messiah should be undefeatable, utterly victorious, utterly powerful and mighty. So what on earth is this Jesus doing? Coming in peace, dealing in stories and healings rather than battles and heroics. And at the end, when he's faced with ultimate injustice, when he's faced with torture, he meekly, timidly suffered. He went down without a fight. He lost. He died. How could that be anything other than weakness? How could that be anything other than a defeat? But Paul sticks to his message. Christ crucified not only the wisdom of God, but also the power of God. Power. It's not weakness. It's power. To humans, surely there can be nothing weaker than death. A dead human, a dead anything is powerless. Useless, dead. It can have no power against it. It can't defend itself. It can't live. And yet Paul tells us Jesus in his death is the power of God. And the Greek word, which we translate as power in this passage, is dynamis, from which we get our word dynamite. We're not just talking about a couple of strong arms bit of arm wrestling ability when we talk about power. Talking about dynamite. And I wrote this before what happened in Paris, but I think it's actually quite prevalent and quite helpful to us. Whatever we can come up with, whatever man can do to demonstrate power and destruction, whatever we can do to to harm this world, Jesus is more powerful. The crucifixion and death and suffering and resurrection of Jesus is more powerful than any bomb any gun, any act of terrorism. There has never been anything more powerful than the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. It's dynamite. That is power. With God, a dead man has the explosive power of dynamite. Jesus' death breathed in his life. It changed the world forever. But imagine hearing that for the first time. You can understand Paul saying, yeah, this is going to sound foolish to you. This is going to sound like weakness. But believe me, it's power. Through one man dying, the sins of the whole of humanity can be forgiven. Through one man dying, the rift, the gap between the Creator God and His sinful, rebellious, created people is is closed, is repaired. Through one man dying, all of those who accept him as Lord are prevented from eternal separation from God and welcomed into joyful life with him in paradise.
Jesus' death, Christ crucified, our whole concept of who, who God is and how we relate to him is just blown to shreds. And of course we know that death is not the end for Jesus. It's the dynamite power of God to even turn death on its head. And that resurrection of Jesus is the ultimate confirmation that God's power is greater than anything we can imagine. They're the two things that I wanted to bring this morning. How do we apply them? That God's wisdom is, God's foolishness even is, is stronger than any of our wisdom. God's weakness is stronger than any of our strength. I think I think has two impacts for us. Firstly, in our evangelism, in our in our preaching the gospel, as we are called to be Freedom Church, to be Christians who bring the gospel to the world. Do you know what? We need not preach anything more. Christ crucified and Christ resurrected. We can avoid complicating the issue with human wisdom, human intelligence, human words. We just need to let God's dynamite do its work. We don't need to demonstrate our knowledge or our power or our authority by trying to sound wise and clever. Clearly that was a problem in Corinth. Clearly there were people trying to do that. Paul is very aware of it. Greeks, he says, verse 22, Greeks look for wisdom. That's what Greeks want to say. They want to see wisdom. They want to hear cleverness. They want to hear an argument. They want to hear something that's going to convince them. So do we, to an extent. We want to figure things out for ourselves. We want to hear something that's going to win us over. We want to come up with our own answers. But we mustn't fall into the trap of making the gospel into an intellectual pursuit. We mustn't fall into the trap of making it into a clever argument or a clever story because it's completely unnecessary. It detracts from the central message, which is God's dynamite, which doesn't need anything added to it. It's not about what we know. It's not about how we present it. It's who we know. In the early church, there was the Gnostics, these people who, who tried to turn relationship with God into knowledge. And it was all about who knew what. And special revelation. Oh, I've got this bit of revelation. I know more of you. I'm higher up the ladder towards God than you because I know this and I know that. How about that? It's not about that. Because that just nullifies God's salvation. It just nullifies Christ's power. Jesus made clear that the only thing needed for salvation is him. His death, his resurrection, and a belief in that. No, not a level of knowledge, not a level of intelligence. The message of Jesus, of Christ crucified, is startlingly simple. I was trying to think, if the gospel was a school subject, what would it be? Would it be philosophy? Would it be a complex, beautiful idea explained through reason and argument and, and clever thought? No, I don't think so. Is it maths? Is it a fiddly equation that we've got to work out the answer to? And then the eventual answer to that equation brings an eternal life? No, I don't think it's as complex as that either. Is it literature? Is it all about words? Is it a beautiful piece of writing full of incredible language and complexity with a stunning conclusion? No, I don't think so. 
Is it history? Is it an understanding of the past? How events build up to lead to this main event? Who said what? Who did what? And the impact it had on mankind. Now, I don't think this is as complicated as any of those subjects. I don't think we need to be philosophers or historians or mathematicians to see and understand the gospel. Because when we couch the gospel in all those terms and all those subjects, we wrap it in human ideas, we wrap it in human complication, and we rob it of its simplicity and its accessibility to all. You know, I think the only school subject we need any knowledge of to understand the gospel is woodwork. It's as simple as that. You know, Dave, our handyman friend there, <laughs> you know, woodwork is not something that necessarily draws wows of appreciation as an academic subject. It's not something that goes, oh, wow, that's so clever. That's such a, an amazing thing. It's, it's as simple as woodwork. But there's actually two wooden structures bookend the life of Jesus and explain the gospel to us and all the information we need to know. He came to earth and was laid in a manger, a simple piece of wood knocked together to feed animals out of. Jesus came to earth, God came to earth and was put in a manger. He came and shared in our poverty, he came and shared in our low life. And then he died on a cross. Simple as two pieces of wood nailed together. And that cross, Jesus crucified, an instrument of torture and execution, was where Jesus made his perfect sacrifice for us. It's as simple as that. That God came to earth and he died for us. He came to earth and died for us. And when we try and add human wisdom and intellect to that message, we overcomplicate it. We run the risk of making it about us and not him. Making it about our words. Making it about our way of telling it. But as Paul said earlier on, he, he didn't come and preach with any wisdom or any, any eloquence, any clever words, any clever stories. He didn't add anything of himself to the message. He just relied on Christ crucified, on that dynamite power, that simplicity. God came to earth as much as we need. The second bit of application, the other impact for us, it's just the impact on our lives when we think about God's wisdom and God's strength. That verse, for the foolishness of God is wiser than any human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than any human strength. How does that sit with us at the moment? think about our own lives, we think about our own situations, as you think about where we're at in life, the things we're worrying about, the things we're stressed about, the things that are on our minds. Do we trust really that God has a plan for our lives? Or do we think that we know better? Do we have our own ideas? Are we submissive to his call? And his instruction are always trying actually to go our own way and in our own wisdom. Are we relying on his strength? Or are we trying to get everything done under our own stream, our own steam, and without relying on him? Do we believe 
the difficult situations in our lives can be changed? Or have we allowed ourselves to believe that God is powerless to change the situations we find ourselves in? The message of this passage serves to remind us of the incredible power, authority, wisdom, strength of our God. We can sometimes forget it, or sometimes at least not give it the thought that it deserves. But this passage, I think, gives us a sharp wake-up call. Let it sink in again for a minute. Just close your eyes. Let this wash over you. Think about it afresh. The foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. The weakness of God is stronger than human strength. The foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. The weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that so freeing, so comforting, so awe-inspiring? Sometimes I think to myself, do you know what? I'm pretty wise. I'm reasonably discerning. I know you all think that too. Do you know what? Even in my most profound, wise, amazing, inspiring moment, I don't even come close to even starting to get anywhere near even God's least (laughs) inspiring moment. He doesn't have any. I don't even come close. None of us do. And yet, why do I make the mistake of trying to do things myself? Of trying to work things out for myself? Of trying to rely on my own wisdom and my own intellect? And you know, sometimes we think that we're pretty strong, that we're pretty resilient, that we're pretty sorted that we can cope with whatever's thrown at us, that we can cope with what the world is lashing at us. We think, you know what, I can do this. As long as I've had my couple of cups of coffee in the morning, as long as I've had a good lunch, I've got the strength I need, I can get through this. I'm all right. I can make it. I can do it. Doesn't matter how strong we are. Doesn't matter how many shredded wheat you've had in the morning. Doesn't matter how amazingly, how much amazing capacity you have to cope with anything. Our strength, our ability, our toughness is absolutely nothing compared to the power and the strength and the might of our God. When we think of such a wise, incredible, and strong God, we can feel a bit daunted. We can feel a bit, I'm not sure I can go near you, God. You're just too scary, too big, too, I can't even contemplate. I can't get my head around you, God. You're too much for me. But actually, he's our God. Because with all that might, with all that, Splendor with all that 
incredible wisdom and power. He's not distant. He's not dispassionate. He's not unfeeling. He's loving. He's perfect. He's holy. And he's tender. He's forgiving. And he's merciful. And he loves us. He loves us. Isn't that incredible? All that wisdom, all that power, all that strength. And he uses it to love us and to bless us. It is incredible. I think this passage just brings it home so well. Paul didn't want the church in Corinth to get into that place of it's all about us. It's all about individuals. It's all about leaders. It's all about human gifts, human strengths, human abilities. Because ultimately, all of our human ability, our strength, our wisdom, will be shown up what it is compared to God. It's foolishness. What God gives us is his wisdom, his strength, his might. And that's the incredible, incredible story of the gospel.